0: Uh, welcome, everyone, to St Anne's. For those of you who are St Anne's senior members, welcome back to St Anne's. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Tim Garda. I'm the principal of St Anne's. And I have a very short task today which is to introduce Dr Reynolds, uh, our lecturer, uh, um, to you all. St Anne's has, for some years, ever since uh, this alumni weekend was created, marked it with a founding fellow's lecture and in which we ask a member uh, of our governing body to give a lecture of their choice and have uh, moved across uh, the disciplines year by year. Often we uh, name the founding of fellows' lecture after a particular fellow, but this year for reasons to become apparent, I thought it was better to see it as representing a whole range of the fellows of this college um, who brought it into being. Dr. Reynolds is our fellow in English Literature and if you um, look for what he says he does he makes it pretty clear he says I'm interested in literary form and style, in translation as a creative process in comparative literature especially if it involves Italian French and the classics in visual art and in the practice of fiction so he's published a lot but the three publications which are books that I would uh, refer you to are Realms of Verse and then his um, second major book, which was a collection of English responses to Dante. And then most recently, uh, a book which I would say shows exactly where he's got to in his, his intellectual journey, the poetry translation from Chaucer to Petrarch, From Home to Lone. I'm very glad that it's possible to say that Sedans is a place which sees itself as being the centre for this sort of work. There are two events that take place here in the course of the year. The Weidenfeld Visiting Professor of Comparative Literature comes every year to give a series of Weidenfeld lectures and has done for 15 years. We also are hosts, along with New College and the Queen's College, to the Weidenfeld Translation Prize, which uh, honours each year the translator, and the best translation of any contemporary uh, work, of fictional poetry, any creative work. And now we're establishing at St Anne's a research centre, which is designed in partnership with different university departments and divisions to be an incubator for cross-disciplinary research projects. And one of the first two projects, which we have launched here, is indeed a programme for translation and comparative study. And we are only able to do that thanks to the leadership of Dr Reynolds, who has conceived it and brought it into being. He's brought it into being in partnership with the Humanities Division and with the Oxford Research Centre for the humanities, which is over in the old Radcliffe um, building, the 18th century back, uh, Radcliffe building. Rather alarmingly, um, the acronym is TORCH, but um, TORCH and St Anne's together um, are launching a programme on translation comparative study, which isn't only obviously owned by St Anne's, which involves academics from across the university. But our aim is to make St Anne's the locus for this sort of uh, intellectual debate, And discussion. So, as I said, we're not naming this lecture this year after one particular fellow because I think the shades of many of our founding fellows uh, would be supportive of this. And some of you will have indeed been taught by them by Dolly Bednarovska, our founding fellow in English literature, Iris Murdoch, of course, a philosopher, Annie Barnes in modern languages and, of course, Margaret Hubbard, our great classicist. And so I think it could be no more appropriate than to have this year's lecture on the subject of translation. The title of Dr. Reynolds' lecture is Translation as Literature, and i hand you to him. Thank
1: you. Thank you all very much um, for being here. It's really nice to, um, to have the chance to give this talk. Um, a little while ago, I was um, in this uh, lecture hall listening to the novelist Ali Smith, um, gives some amazing lectures, um, actually. She's uh, someone I, I, I greatly admire. She's quite a, quite a small person with of, of much vim. And she came up here and, um, by way of introduction, she said, people usually say that I speak too fast. And if you find that I'm speaking too fast, please bear with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. It'll all make sense in the end. Um, and I don't myself quite have the gumption to say that. So what I want to say is, please, if... Um, if you know, if I was, do do kind of heckle or wave or something, if I become inaudible or incom- incomprehensible, um, and I'll um, I'll adjust accordingly. Is it all right? Is the is the sound okay at the moment? So long as I don't go. So long as I don't. This is still this is still dangerous to me. What shall what should I do? Oh, okay. I've never I've never had to give a lecture in quite these circumstances before. <laughs> Should I take this one off? Wait. Yeah, but I I don't. Uh, it's the I don't know where the sound guy is. Sorry. Yeah, there is there is someone who's meant to be. It's not my responsibility. Oh that sounds better. That's better. Great. Good. Um, now I can now I can now I can start. I hope. Um, translations are, are part of literature. Um, obviously, they're part of its processes, part of its history. Um, think of what Shakespeare took into his work from Ovid, say, and from Golding's translation um, of Ovid, or from Plutarch in Thomas North's translation. Um, and from many other non-English and translated sources. Think of what writers all over the world have taken from Shakespeare in a multitude of translations. Think of Virgil's importance to Dryden, Popes to Homer, Pulch's to Byron, Walter Scott's to Mansoni, Dante's to Browning, Madame de Stael's to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, George Eliot's to Tolstoy, many Russian writers to Virginia Woolf. Think of the transformative influence of American fiction on Italian literature in the mid-20th century. Think of the impact of European novels in Japan in the late 19th century. Literature is international. It relies on the physical circulation of texts from place to place. It relies on translation. The phrase English literature um, is a contradiction in terms. We need to beware of the fact that in our culture kids who are interested in reading typically go to university to study a subject they think of as English Our courses in so-called English literature need to include translation. They need to be open to writing in other languages. Normally when I say this kind of thing, the uh, the chair of the English faculty comes in through the back with a hammer and tells me to to be careful what what I'm saying, but I seem to have escaped um, this time. Translations are in literature then. Translations are part of the literary enterprise. We need to keep asserting this uh, because people sometimes forget it. But once you have asserted it, um, I think it's not too hard to persuade people to, 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 to agree with this point of view. It's just kind of there in the landscape of literary history for people to observe. Nevertheless, there is still a widespread resistance, I think, to thinking of a translation as in itself a fully literary text. There's no need to read a translation when you can read the original. Lots of people would agree with that statement, I think. A translation is never as good as the original, or almost never as good as the original. A lot of people would probably agree with that um, that assertion too. Maybe, though, with a caveat. Could I have the um, Could I have the PowerPoint? Could the projector? There should be a projector working. There's a PowerPoint. Sorry, I didn't know that it wasn't. Yeah. The tech guys are usually usually brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, a quotation will come up in a minute. I hope. <clears throat> um, anyway, when you um, yeah, um, when you look at instances of people saying this, okay, so just sometimes somebody will say, look, here's a translation, and let's let's make the claim that it's better um, than its source text. Um, but what happens when people um, say that um, is that well, something interesting happens, and the slide that should be there, slide that will be there in about five minutes probably, um, is a quotation from George Steiner talking about this. And he says, there are originals we no longer turn to because the translation is of a higher magnitude. For instance, the sonnets of Louise Labbé, he says, um, after Rilke's um, translation of them. I'll just put that that up. Um, So that he's prepared to say, look, here's a translation that's become better than the source text. But what happens... When you say, oh, look, here's a translation that's become better than the source text, is that you don't think of it as a translation anymore. You think of it as something that's taken the place of the text um, that it's originated from. So that though it may be a translation in a kind of genetic sense, through a process of translation it came into being, it's not really a translation anymore ontologically, in the way you take it and what it really is and what it's it's about. Um, With its um, higher magnitude... Um, It's squashed the source text, taken its place, become an original in its own right, squashed the source text, um, as a sumo wrestler might, um, sitting on the ladybird, for instance, might do. Um, So there's a duck-rabbit effect. If you're reading it as a literary text, then you're not reading it as a translation and vice versa. And this, I think, is really widespread in people's assumptions about translation. If you think of the Rubaiyat, for instance, poems by or attributed to Omar Khayyam, translated by Edward Fitzgerald, this book which became hugely popular in the late 19th century, had an impact on the young T.S. Eliot, this is typically not read as a translation, but as an English poem with a Persian flavour. And here's Frank Camot talking about that. What he says is, the poem is an allusion to the Rubaiyat. Definitely not a translation under any circumstances. It's an allusion to the Rubaiyat, a product of Fitzgerald's good mid-Victorian talent under Persian stimulus, um, one of a uh, list of approved Burger escape myths. And that shows that you don't necessarily have to admire um, the kind of sumo wrestler translation text in order to take it as a poem that is kind of squashing um, the original that has, has given rise to it, which is to say, to think of it as Edward Fitzgerald's Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, with Omar Khayyam becoming part of the title, rather than Omar Khayyam's poems that Edward Fitzgerald has had something to do with. Um, no, no doubt this attitude flourishes in this particular case, um, because not very many people in, in England know Persian, so not very many people can kind of read the two texts side by side, and I'm actually no exception um, to, to that. Um, but you can get a sense of the relationship between Fitzgerald's English and the Persian of Khayyam with the help of um, this really uh, wonderful, wonderful book um, by um, Edward Heron Allen, um, which um, was produced in the um, 1890s as a result of the um, success, the popularity of Fitzgerald's I was about to say Fitzgerald's poem, that's not right, is it? Um, as a result of the Kayam Fitzgerald um, work, the, 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 the Rubaiyat. And so he quotes the Persian and gives a crib translation and uh, puts Fitzgerald's text next to it. And working one's way through that, you find that actually a lot of Fitzgerald's quatrains are really very close um, to Kayam's source text, more than you'd expect, um, given the uh, attitude um, of, of, um, of Frank Kermode. Um, This is it's a a rare and expensive and rather beautiful book, but I was really and costs hundreds of pounds. But I was really lucky to find a kind of flood damaged copy, which because people are more interested, people in general, I think, more interested in the cover than in the contents. I got for about two pounds fifty or something, which I was very pleased about. I like to think it survived the famous flood of the library in Florence, but I think it was probably a more prosaic (laughs) flood than that. Um, The same attitude: if if it has literary value, then don't think about it as a translation anymore. uh, applies, is often applied to Ezra Pound's cafe. So the texts in this book were not translated direct from their Chinese sources, but mediated to Pound via Japanese transcriptions and English notes and cribs by the scholar Ernest Fenioza. And Pound's title page makes no secret of this. In fact, he offers it up as something that he really wants readers to notice um, and be interested in. Translations often result from serial or collaborative mediation across languages. So, for instance, Norse Plutarch, that famous and you know massively influential Renaissance text was translated not directly from the Greek, but from an intermediate translation into French by Jacques Amiaux. Um, in our time, Ismail Kadare is translated into English not directly from the Albanian, but by an intermediary French translation by Yusuf Frioni. Even Pope, you know, thinking about Pope's Homer. Pope could read Greek, you know, really pretty well, very well. Um, But nevertheless, he was still helped by um, lots of commentaries, by Latin cribs, um, for instance, importantly, by Joshua Barnes, by earlier English versions, by Madame Dacier's French prose version. Um, So our default way of thinking about translation, which is to say there's one text over there, and a translator comes and turns it into this other text over here, this way of thinking about it in which you've just got two texts and a person, um, that's really I think quite rarely, um, if ever, the case. In fact I remember another thing, the many delightful things that have happened in this room, another one was the poet Michael Longley, um, who does really good um, searching translations of bits of mainly of the Iliad but also of the Odyssey and turns them into English lyrics, um, talking about how often transferring them to, um, to the countryside of, of, of the west of Ireland. Um, and talking about the way in which he did it, and he'd load up the boot of his car with uh, Homer, but also the dictionary, and also commentaries, and also other versions that kind of drive around, until inspiration struck, at which point all the books would come out of the boot of the car and be laid out on the pub table, Um, and the work of creative translation would begin in response to this multitude um, of open texts. And even, in fact, if you think about it, on... You know, well, I mean, I think it is quite rare, isn't it, that a translator is just going to be translating and not referring to a dictionary, not Googling, and so on. But even if one imagines this, you know, rare case, um, the texts, the other texts that feed into the process of translation, are still going to be there. They're just going to have become weightless and invisible, which is to say they'll have left their traces, they'll have become part of the translator's linguistic knowledge. So I want to go so far as to say, I think, that it's not only often that translation draws on a multitude of text, but always it's not just a matter of one text being brought over um, into another one. So the presence of intermediaries behind Pound's Café doesn't prevent it from being a translation indeed from manifesting um, clairvoyance in the opinion of one Chinese scholar, Wei Yip, um, thinks this is a great triumph of translation. Um, to me, reading these pound Chinese texts, um, the awareness that the words I'm reading are translating a text that I don't understand from the past and from a foreign language and from a foreign culture um, is inseparable from the poetic charge that they carry. Take, for instance, this opening line of a poem, blue, Blue is the grass about the river. You know, blue. Um, and you look at the word and you think, you know, this, this provocative word, you know, why not green? And you think, well, what's, you know, what is it? Why blue? Is it blue because, you know, should I imagine it's the evening? Should I imagine that the, the person looking at the person kind of registering this sensation, should I say this is somebody feeling blue? That usage of the word already existed when Pound was writing. Or is there some special kind of Chinese sort of grass that I don't understand? That is that I don't know of. That is actually blue. Or is it rather the, the you know the color spectrum, that continuous color spectrum between blue and green? Maybe the boundary is drawn differently in Chinese than in English. Maybe that's what's being suggested here. Um, but what I am sure of though is that this word, this surprising word choice, blue, um, is being done both to be provocative poetically, which is to say, to give me a startling. Uh, you know, or a surprising image and also to make me think about the cultural and linguistic difference that's being crossed in this act of translation both at the same time. Despite this though here's Hugh Kenner who is of course a much you know, grander and more powerful um, critic than me insisting that one must shut out awareness that these texts of translations if you're going to read them as, as literature. Cathay's real achievement he says lay not on the frontier of comparative poetics but securely within the effort then going forward in London to rethink the nature of an English poem so Ken, kind of like these other you know, grand old male critics I've been quoting Steiner, Commode, um, has a resistance to seeing a text as being inextricably both literary and a translation if it's a translation then it's necessarily second best a to channel towards the other greater text which is the really literary one On the other hand, if it is itself a literary text, it's self-sufficient. And the source text, which gave rise to it, drops away or gets squashed under the higher magnitude, as Steiner said, um, of its successor. Now, this attitude, this kind of duck-rabbit thing going on, um, is not only the preserve of the critical Mandarin. Um, We can see it all around us in the way translations are packaged and marketed. Um, So here, for instance, is... Though you wouldn't know it, Richard Dixon's skillful recent translation of Il Cimitero di Praga by Umberto Eco. And Dixon is completely swashed out of existence by the really very enormous high magnitude um, of Eco's authorial name. Um, here is Sally Ann Spencer's really interesting recent translation of Die Rache der Sverge by Marcus Heitz. And here the main sumo wrestler figure that squashed Sally Ann Spencer um, is the word dwarves, because that, after all, is the, the book's USP, what it has to offer, both because dwarves are, I think, an unusual focus for a fantasy book and because this is part of the best-selling dwarves series. I should say that not all the choices I'm going to be talking about represent my personal, uh, personal <laughs> taste, although my kids tell me that, um, that this one is actually... Quite good. These books, I've, th- these books have, have got into my room, actually, because of my involvement with the Oxford-Leidenfeld Translation Prize that Tim was talking about, that brings you know, all literary translations, literally kind of broadly conceived, obviously, literary, literary translations from European languages um, into English. So what I'm offering is a kind of selection, um, selection, of, selection of those. Um, here's a different way of encouraging readers to forget that what they're faced with is a translation. Um, and in this case, the sumo wrestler had no ladybird to squash because, after all, Beowulf doesn't have an author. Beowulf is the only, you know, name that attaches um, to that text. Nevertheless, though, notice the, the sort of design finesse that puts Seamus Heaney's name where an authorial name would go, if there were one, probably. Um, and the sort of, you know, so, so that the, just, I mean, it, it, it's not kind of a huge thing, is it? But nevertheless, awareness of its being a translation kind of drops away beneath awareness, beneath the idea that this is a, a text that's come to us from Seamus Heaney. So this is a bit like Kenner's reading of Cafe or Kermodes of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Um, and here's the extreme um, of this way of doing it. Um, these translations, in fact, from Machado, from the Spanish poem Machado by um, Don Paterson, um, which you know are, are in fact quite, uh, in, in, you know, responsive and imaginative and subtle uh, texts, but nevertheless quite close um, versions of the Spanish um, text of the Spanish poems by Machado that the that, that the figure of of Paterson has knocked off um, the front page, and actually done with the help of, you know, just as Pope had used. Um, intermediaries and previous translations, so Patterson made use of of this book, um, this translation by by Alan Trueblood, and Trueblood obviously didn't already have an established reputation as a poet, um, and so couldn't assert the same semi-wrestler dominance of the cover um, as Don Patterson was able to. Now, what these covers show is the varying degree of input into the translated text that a translators felt to have. They raise a question of authorship. And also they show a reluctance to advertise these poems and novels as being multi-authored. In the novels, it's the source text author who the covers announce comes through to you unchanged. And with the poems translated by Heaney and Patterson, it's the translator who takes on the status of author, the look of an author. And there's clearly a connection between who gets to be the sumo wrestler author figure and the genre of the text that's being published. In a novel, the assumption is that what matters is the imagined world, those elements of plot and setting that the assumption is still can be carried over into another language unchanged or almost unchanged. In a novel, the idea is the words are less important, and so the work of a translator has less claim to prominence. It's hard to imagine a novel where the translator's name has the prominence of Don Patterson's in his translations of Machado. And equally hard to imagine reading a translated poem without wanting to know who penned the English words that you're reading. Rubaiyat of Omakayam is quite a good example of this because when it first came out, and sorry, this is a you can't, can't read that at all, um, but um, it, it hasn't got Fitzgerald's name in any form on the title page, and as it was republished during his lifetime, he still kept his name off the title page. He just wanted it to say "Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, the astronomer-poet of Persia." But as um, the the kind of modestly published little book was discovered by Dante Gabriel Rossetti and then became famous in the culture, you know, the culture asserted the need for Fitzgerald to become prominent as the the co-author and the dominant author figure um, of this text, for it to take on life as a poem rather than um, as a translation. Now, the examples I've been presenting so far are extremes, both with poetry and with prose fiction. The translator's name or the the original author's name in the the, the case of poetry does pretty much always figure, um, at least inside on the title page, and often it's allowed on the cover too, um, although usually in kind of modestly smaller letters like here um, and here. And what I've been interested in, in the work I've been doing um, for the last... Um, I think it is a decade (laughs) or so now, um, is what I've been wondering about is how to make sense of this doubleness, this complexity which translated texts have, which is to say, I'm interested in drawing more attention to the translatedness um, of these texts and to make better sense of it, to, as it were, expand understanding of the translator's contribution to, to the text and to achieve a better balance between one's sense of what's coming from the source text, the author, um, and what's coming from the translator. Now, in that book, The Poetry of, of, of Translation, which, uh, which Tim mentioned as, as the end point of my, of my thoughts, I have, I have moved on a little bit. I don't know, I've, I've had another, well, about three thoughts um, since then. In that book, I concentrated on uh, particularly charged translations or moments of translation within longer poems, where this complexity... The kind of activity that translation is, where that got caught up into um, what was going on in the poem um, and becomes part of what the translated text um, is about. So that the translated text is done in such a way as to make visible and reflect upon and ask you to notice and think about and imagine your way into um, its own processes. Um, and the only way I can explain this, actually, that's, that's clearly not a very uh, clear explanation, but the only way I can, I, I, I can explain this is, um, is through an example. Um, Pound's Café actually would be one example, but in fact I want to, I want to show you another one. Um, and this is Dryden, Dryden's Virgil. Dryden spent pretty much his whole life um, reading and responding to, quoting, doing little bits of translation from, from Virgil. Um, and much of the last decade of his life, um, translating the works of Virgil. So it's a great imaginative enterprise. And it's you know, a really amazing piece of writing that results. One of the, you know, the great poem translations in English, which, because they are poem translations, aren't just in English, but are in Anglo-Latin or Anglo-European, um, something like that. So he finished this great work. Um, and sat down to write the preface. And one of the things he wrote um, was this. I've done great wrong to Virgil in the whole translation. Which I find really startling and moving. Um, And it's not just a piety, he really meant it, um, I think. And it's quite interesting to work out why that should be. Um, The reason he thought this um, was that, for him, translation was inevitably a process of opening, of clarifying. And this idea came through to him from all the thinking about translation, the great kind of energetic thinking about translation that had accompanied translations of the Bible during the Reformation. Um, so that, for instance, the translators of the King James Version say, translation it is famously, translation it is that openeth the window that lets in the light. Um, so for Dryden, what, as a as Bible translator, what he's doing in translating is confronting a text that is mysterious and opening out its meaning um, so that it can be, you know, to an extent all translations obviously do this, but opening out its meaning so that it can be understood by a reader. Um, now that may be one thing in the context of religious translation of a religious text, um, but it's a different thing um, in the context of the translation of poetry, um, especially a poet like Virgil, because um, for Dryden, what Dryden most loved um, in Virgil was his subtlety, um, his ambiguity, his... Nuance his kind of mystery, um, in a way, his secret beauties, as Dryden called them. Um, And here you can see the problem, which is to say that what Dryden saw in, what Dryden relished in Virgil was a kind of secrecy. And in translating, he had to open that out. He had to put light into Virgil's secret places. Partly because, you know, that was inevitably what translation did, he thought. Um, But also because by doing that, after all, you let readers know, you allow readers to see um, the, the, the secrets that you've discovered. But of course, by allowing readers to see them, you stop them being secrets, so the reader doesn't have the pleasure of discovering them anymore. And so the particular thing, the most beautiful thing about Virgil, gets destroyed, inevitably destroyed by this act of translation that Dryden is engaged in. Now... The way this comes through dramatically in his translation, in the moments that I call the poetry of translation in his translation, is when he sees characters or incidents that are doing the same sort of thing that he thinks that he is himself doing to Virgil. So moments when there is a secret or moments when a character is involved in kind of understanding or discovering something about another character. So one example of this would be um, the bit when... um, the Greeks have sailed off and they've left the wooden horse um, and the Trojans lay on and others are kind of debating about whether there might be something inside um, you know there's something secretly hidden in the Trojan horse and this is one of these charged moments for Dryden another one is um, in book four when Aeneas and Dido have got it together in the secrecy of that cave during the storm um, and farmer rumor spreads the news of what they've been doing all the way across North Africa in this sort of uh, on, yeah and, 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 and what happens there and, and yeah and that 's another instance in that Dryden sees in that rumor figure a kind of nightmare model of what he 's doing in the act of, of translating a kind of act of vulgarizing and and kind of you know, a kind of higher form of gossip in a way. Um, the instance I want to look at in a little bit of detail though um, is from when just the beginning of book five, and this is where. You know, the, the whole thing with Dido has come to an end. And Aeneas and his followers are sailing off. And Dido, left behind, has thrown herself onto the pyre. And the smoke is rising in the distance. And Aeneas and the Trojans look back and interpret, you know, this smoke, this sign that they see. Um, and what Dryden writes in his translation is this. So the he here is is um, Aeneas. The cause unknown, yet his presaging mind the fate of Dido from the fire divined. He knew the stormy souls of womankind, what secret springs their eager passions move, how capable of death for injured love. Now, this is a bit different from what, um, what Virgil wrote, uh, which is um, this, and I've done a sort of slightly inept crib translation. Um, I'm not sure which bit to, bit to read out. The, the bit I'm most interested in is uh, towards the end um, the sad augury, the triste per augurium teucrorum pectoraducum, that bit. Um, the, there's, a, there's a sort of sad impression or augury being led into the, the, the breasts of the, of, of the Trojans. Now, of course, every translation is a bit, um, bit different from you know, it's, its source text. So what we need to focus on is not the fact of difference, but the kind of it, to look into the differences um, and understand them. And the striking differences here are, I think, firstly, the emphasis on Aeneas alone, he knew, whereas in Virgil, it's all the Trojans together who are looking back and wondering. And then secondly, there's the... Hang on, if I go on to it again, yeah. And then secondly, there's this weight, the clichéd certainty of what Aeneas knows or thinks he knows. He knew the stormy souls of womankind, the secret springs, how capable of death. He's got it all worked out. Women, you know, he understands them. Um, and I think this is pitched by Dryden in such a way as to make you suspect this assertion of knowledge, of knowing um, that Aeneas is engaged in here, to make you think, OK, this is the confidence. Maybe this is the confidence of an epic hero to say, I've got it all worked out, I can, I can forge ahead. But there's also something um, you know, blind and blunt and callous about it. Because everything that's happened in Book 4 has shown us that the experience that Dido has been through is something much more subtle and intricate and unknowable, really, than Aeneas can understand here. And the reason why Dryden is sensitised to this moment of one character looking into the secrets of another character and thinking that he can know them um, is because all his anxiety about what he's doing to Virgil is channelled into this moment, and he sees in Aeneas here an image of of himself. So um, that is um, an instance of what I call um, the the poetry of of translation in that book. Um, Translation, I think, can do all sorts of different things. Something to see about translation is there are many different degrees and kinds of writing that happen under this capacious umbrella word translation. And one kind of writing is this sort of thing that I've been talking about here, Um, and it happens, you know, it happens mainly in poetry, and it doesn't happen in all poem translations by any means. Um, it's one kind of thing that in the kind of imaginative realm of translation, one kind of thing um, that can happen. But here, um, rather than just reiterate more instances of, of, of this kind of thing, um, I want to do something a bit different which is to explore um, the kind of reading experience that translations can offer, pretty much any translation, not just these especially you know, charged and self-referential moments that I talked about in the poetry of translation. Um, and I want to explore what thinking about translations can show us about the texts that they're translations of. And I want to start by showing you um, lots of translations of the first line of Dante's Commedia. Um, which is pretty straightforward to translate, one would have thought, you know, in the middle of the journey of our life, something like that. I should say, to mention the book, um, Dante in English, that uh, I did a while ago, um, collaboratively with um, Eric Griffiths, who was my old, one of my old tutors in, in, in Cambridge. Um, and I, I should say that I do have, as a result of that, uh, a kind of very close... <laughs> with everything that that implies, acquaintance with a lot of um, translations of, of Dante into English because um, our work on this went back to when I was a graduate student, which is now 20 years ago, and he was my supervisor, and he got the contract to edit this book, Dante in English, um, but he didn't know very much Italian at the time, so he asked if, if I would help, um, so I said yes, <laughs> um, and he, you know, quite reasonably, being the senior person, took all the good bits, you know, he said, well, I'll do Byron, and I'll do T.S. Eliot, and I'll do Chaucer, and so on, and I think it would be really good for you, Matthew, if um, you read all the other translations of Dante. And I went, yes, I'm sure that will be very good for me. Uh, only then to discover, really, that um, about every other year through the 19th century, somebody put out a translation of the whole, <laughs> of, um, of whole, whole Commedia. Uh, so I did read, perhaps not every word, but I did, I did read all through um, those. I think of that as the kind of lost years of my life. <laughs> but um, let, me, let me share with you though some of the uh, some of the fruits of it. Um, so I've got a, a lot of um, a lot of translations here. Um, so this is Carey. Um, this is the translation that a bit like um, the Rubaiyat actually. Nobody noticed when it first came out and then about ten years later Coleridge made a big deal of it in a lecture that he gave and it immediately then became the translation that everyone read the translation that mattered to Tennyson and many other poets through the 19th century in the midway of this our mortal life, Kerry puts Um, here's one from a bit earlier um, from a little sample of translation within a larger book by By William um, Hayley in the mid-season of this our mortal strife um, next we have Elizabeth Barrett Browning. All in the middle of the road of life. Um, here's Lawrence Binion. And this was a translation that Pound had to do with, um, actually. Pound read and admired and corrected um, c- corrected some uh, s- some lines, some of Binion's lines. Midway, the journey of this life I was where. It's quite strange, that one, isn't it, really? Um, here's Dorothy L. Sayers. Midway, this way of life we're bound upon. Getting that kind of pul- that characteristic Dorothy Elsay's pulse going right from the, right from the beginning. Um, this is a really interesting, uh, hardly anyone knows about it, uh, fragmentary translation by someone called Peter Wigham, 1985. He only did the first 10 um, cantos. Life's Path, Half Past. He starts. And I'm saying, I'm going to break with this tradition of putting it into pentameters. I'm going to put it into a line that could conceivably be a line of a 1980s English poem. Um, This is Steve Ellis. This is a kind of chatty, colloquial, a kind of northern dialectal element to it, halfway through our trek in life, and he puts trek instead of journey in order to signal this commitment to kind of uh, exercise, muscularity that there is um, throughout the translation that follows. Halfway through the story of my life, Kieran Carson. interesting one. Um, At one point, midway on our path in life. And I think I've got one more. Oh yeah, this is what made me think um, I, I should talk about Dante instead of some of the figures that I think were advertised in the in the um, in the advertisement for this lecture. This this Clive James um, translation that was in the made the book's pages a, a couple of months ago um, at the midpoint of the of the path through life I found, um, Clive James puts. Now, what should we make of this variety? You know, here's this line, and I thought, well, I know what that means. Uh, but actually, each translator has made something slightly different um, of it. And I think one thing, one response uh, to this variety is to say, well, they're all wrong. You know, none of them is quite right. Um, there's something special about that Dante poem. None of them quite catches, I don't know, uh, the, the melody, the harmony of Mezzo del Camino, that alliteration on the M, for instance. None of them quite catches that. Um, although a couple of them uh, do. Haley kind of does, and Carey kind of does. But then one can imagine somebody saying, well, none of them quite catches the significant internal rhyme on the A, the Cammin, the Nostra, the Vita, the way the line seems to open up phonetically as it proceeds. Now, actually, in his path half past, that's exactly what Wiggum is interested in doing. He's interested in carrying over that kind of R sound that there is um, in the Italian. But anyway... Um, these imaginary naysayers will assert. What matters is the particular inimitable combination of everything in the Italian. The English just isn't the same. And this kind of attitude, I think, this is what I'm imagining here, parodying here, um, is, I think, quite, quite widespread. Um, in reviews of translations, at least... And pretty much whatever angle is taken in a review, there's always a moment when a reviewer has to have a little moment of triumph, really, when the reviewer says the translation has failed to capture this or that aspect of the source text, its tone or its spirit, something like that. And we'll look at an example of that in a minute. Um, but what I want to say to this kind of attitude um, is, is, is two things, really. The first is that, of course, it doesn't match up, you know, of course there are aspects of the source text that the translation doesn't capture. And what's funny about it is that um, really I think quite a lot of talking about translation relies on an assumption that when you think about it for a moment is obviously um, silly, which is to say that it relies on the assumption that the aim of a translation is to be the same as the source text. And then whenever you notice a difference between the translation and the source text, it gets marked down as a failing but it's impossible for the translation to be the same as a source text. It's a different text in a different language. Of course it is. It's obvious that it is. It's a different text in a, in a, in a different moment, in a different culture, in a different language. And so really we need to get, to get away from this sort of knee-jerk, oh, look, there's a difference. The translation hasn't done its job properly. Um, and instead uh, be open to, these, uh, to, to, to the shifts and the, the differences and to look into them and explore to see how they might have come about and what they might be showing us. And I'll I'll try to do a little bit of that um, in due course. Um, The other thing I I want to say to this attitude um, is when you're doing this, when we are doing this activity of measuring a translation against a source text, what are we saying that it's different from or like exactly? Um, in fact, what you're doing, what we're doing when we look at a translation and look at a source text and wonder about whether they match up. We're not comparing the source the translation to the source text, it's the whole thing. What we're doing is comparing the comparing the translation to our reading of the source text, to an interpretation that we've built out of the source text. We're looking at the translation and we're saying, well, it's not the same as this, but the this that we see is the thing that that we've made inevitably it's our reading inevitably it's a narrower thing than the range of interpretive possibilities that the source text has and this I think is why people so often reach for the word original when they're talking about translations and source texts together it's a funny old word that original isn't it and I think it's striking um, how much these days it persists in and has got attached to people talking about translation. You know The temptation when you're looking at a translation in a source or when you're talking about a text that you know in the original language and the person you're talking to doesn't know, the temptation to say, well, in the original it goes like this. In the original the tone is this. In the original it's actually funny, one says, with all the kind of pride in one's own um, linguistic expertise. But if we think about how we talk about texts that we read in our own language when there isn't this structure of comparison with something else, it would be really weird, you know, obviously narrowing to make the same claim. You know, to be reading, I don't know, know, to be or not to be, that is that, and say, well, because I can read it in the original, um, I can say with certainty that the tone is this, or that the main nuance is this, or the thing that this interpretation has failed to capture is this. And so there's a strange way, I think, in which because of this structure of comparison when people are talking about translations, the, there's, a, there's a kind of tendency to shut down the plurality of the, 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 the kind of um, fluidity of interpretation that a source text necessarily has and to replace it with a more rigid thing, which is one's own reading of the, um, of the source text and to call that the original and to blame the translation for not matching up to it. Um, here's an example um, of the kind of thing I mean, um, of a reviewer's interpretation being made to stand in um, for the source text. And it's from a review of um, a really searching, brilliant actually, interesting translation by Jamie McKendrick of Bassani's novel, The Giardino dei Finzi Contini, and we shortlisted it for the Weidenfeld Prize a few years ago. And one of the things McKendrick is really interested in doing is getting out of people's assumptions about what Ferrolesio culture um, in the 30s and 40s, 30s really must have must have been uh, must have been like. And instead, finding ways of bringing the characters' uh, voices to, to, to life on the on the page, registering the complexity of the characters in the novel. But the reviewer won't have any of this. You know, the reviewer says, "Can one really imagine?" these highly sophisticated 1930s federalaza Jews who cite by heart Baudelaire, Carducci and Emily Dickinson exclaiming he looked like a right little wimp or utter bullshit or repeating no way would the refined Adriana Trentini really be up for it and is it even remotely conceivable that the ultra literary Nicole could remark to the narrator you make off you make off to make out round at your true love's You know, one could have a discussion about each of these examples, but, you know, part of the the point of translation choices is to bring into being the choices that have been shut out. And, indeed, of course, the discussion... I mean, discussion is rather a polite word for it, but then, you know, the discussion did ensue in the letters pages of the TLS um, in in, in the following weeks. But what interests me here is the confidence with which the reviewer legislates for the tonality of these voices. You know, can one really imagine? Is it even remotely conceivable... You know, why, why not? Why should it not be conceivable? And it seems to me a sort of sweet, bizarre, paradoxical idea that if you've been reading Baudelaire, you're never going to be up for it. <laughs> 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 I would have thought rather, probably rather the reverse. Um, looked at differently, though, with a more open mind, translations can free us from the narrowness of our own interpretations, which is to say, it's really hard, actually, you're reading a text... It becomes, your re- it becomes your reading of the text. And something I really value in translations is the closeness with which you, you can look at and somebody else's version of it and say, so, gosh, that's a little bit, you know, ah, it jolts you out of your assumptions, the assumptions that you've built up about the thing um, that you're reading. And if we look back at these um, different takes on Dante's line, um, well, one thing um, that's making these lines come out in the varied ways in which they have come out um, is a feeling about rhythm and movement. So most of the translators feel that Dante's hendecasyllables syllables are like English pentameters, but Binion and Wiggum and Ellis don't. They challenge us to hear a different rhythm. Translators also draw out different meanings um, of the words. Take the word Camin, which I would myself automatically translated as journey, and that's how Binion hears it too. But the other translators, other readers, um, have seen other significances in the word. Road, season, path, trek, story. Part of what we can see happening here is translators being aware of and sometimes designedly differing from their predecessors. So Carey echoes Haley, for instance, I think that's pretty clear. But Ellis makes the surprising choice, trek, I think, in order to signal that his translation is going to be different from the translations that have come before. Carson choosing that surprising word story um, relies is, is really kind of signalling in advance an association that develops as you read through the Commedia because the Commedia is inseparably both the telling of the story and the walking of a journey. It's the story of a journey and so the meaning of those words blurs. But Carson I think has a liberty to make this surprising choice because the Commedia has so often been translated before so that in a way people are expecting um, you know, that the sort of shadow of the word journey is there for him to attach the word um, story to. Even perhaps more interestingly, um, I think, is the significance of, well, to wonder about the significance of the word nostra, in nostra vita. Our mortal life, Carey feels the need to say, following Haley, to underline that the us here must consist of living people whose life passes through time and is therefore like a journey, unlike the lives of immortal souls, which don't pass through time and so therefore are not like um, a journey in the same way. Other translators drop the hour, perhaps feeling that the usness of life is obvious and needs no emphasis. Maybe for them, nostra is an unimportant connective, mainly the, for the rhythm. Carson's My Life takes a different angle again, I think partly as though to say, well, the only story that you can really tell is the story of your own life, but also because story of my life, it's the story of my life, has a kind of colloquial feel to it, and I think his hunch—the thing he's, want, he's sort of seeing in the line—is the feeling that Camin di nostra vita," the idea that this might be a little bit of a tag, a tag phrase too. That it's not a grandiose journey of our life kind of phrase for Dante, but more of a common, more of a, a sort of less of a um, well, a, a, a kind of less grand thing. And I think he might be right about this because. That phrase "camin di nostra vita" isn't Dante's invention. Um, it comes into the Commedia from biblical sources. There's Isaiah. There's um, uh, there is to Corinthians um, behind it. Um, it's in some of Dante's earlier works. It's the kind of phrase you can imagine, you know, just circulating in in ordinary conversation, as it does, you know, now in the culture at large. People talk about, I don't know, life's a journey. That's a that's an advertising slogan, isn't it? Um, and I think in in any text, what Carson's way with this line is reminding us is that any text, you know, in any text, the words haven't just kind of come into being and been stuck on the page. The words have come into the text from other uses of language, um, from other texts, and it's because of this varied life beyond the page that they have the varied possible meanings that the translators are drawing out in their varied translations. So what these different translations are showing us, in fact, is what they're opening up for us, is this signifying possibility, this complexity in the meanings of the words on the page that the single reader might not be able to see, that I might not be able to see, I wasn't able to see um, for myself. But that complexity of meaning has got onto the page because of how the words have been used before. That's where the complexity of meaning comes from, obviously. So that what this multiple translation is showing us, is opening up for us, is the translation, the translatedness, the way the words on the page have come from elsewhere and brought with them onto the page the the, the meanings that attach to them because of how they've been used before. Um, Translation shows us that source texts are translations too. Let me just say, actually, this is going to be a slightly embarrassing aside, but I, um, I, I feel the na- need to say because I know um, Kate from the Development Office has put um, copies of some of my novels on a table um, outside. Um, and it would probably be a bit odd for me not to say anything about them at, at, at all. Um, uh, but I, I suppose... And actually, this is a bit of an awkward, awkward leap. Um, but... Um, I, yeah, so, so the connection between what I'm saying and that other work, that, that, that work of writing fiction, is that what I'm really interested in doing as a, as a writer of fiction is taking kinds of language, taking identifiable kinds of language that you don't associate with literature and putting them in the literary space and seeing what happens so there are two books like this the first is called Designs for a Happy Home and that's got the language the jargon the language of interior design in it I was really interested in the kind of cliche language that you find in those terrible programs on television and I was interested in bringing it into the literary into the space of literary fiction and seeing if it could be um, made interesting seeing if it could be made moving I I was really interested in the kind of lens on the world that that kind of language created and the second book called The World Was All Before Them does a similar which is kind of more ambitious book, in a way, it does a similar thing with, all, with, with different kinds of language, but especially medical um, language, technical medical language. Um, and I was really interested in the kind of precision and kind of grip, the kind of diagnosis um, that medical language can exert on, on, on the world. And also quite interested in the way in which um, many of us don't understand it. So I became an expert in all sorts of things in the course of writing the book and have now forgotten quite a lot of that expertise. So there are passages that I don't quite understand anymore that I've written, but... Um, but you see, that's, that, that, that's good because what I'm—I I don't think we should, um, you know. There are pleasures of language that are different from from understanding. And I was interested in creating a text where readers, a lot of the time, would know what was—you know—it's not like Fingal's Wake, but a lot of the time, you'd know what was going on. But just there'd be this sense of the language going off into a possibility of knowledge which was closed off from you as a as, as a reader. So um, it does—it is, you know, it. Uh, for me, living through writing these books together over the last few years, there has been this contiguity of interest because I think of what I'm doing in those fictional books as a kind of, as a kind of translation, as a bringing a different variety of language into, in, in, into these books. Anyway, let me get back to my advertised um, topic. All these different versions of this line. Um, once you're at this level, you know, can one say which one is better than the other? You know, one, you know, I prefer some to others. Can you say which is better? My feeling is that once you're at this level of nuance that we've been exploring with these different translations of Dante's first line, there's no way of deciding which of the alternatives is right. You know, in a rough sense, translations stand in for their source text. They do pretty much the same job as the source text. They tell the same story, for instance. But once you get to a certain level of detail, um, what they show us is there's no fixed thing there in the source text for them to be said to be like. What they make visible is the source text's own translatedness from multiple sources, and the collaborative imaginative activity of reading by which meaning is drawn out, and which for every reader is going to be a shade different. They open up the space of signifying possibility that the source text holds as potential. And this, this is what Dryden, this is, isn't it? This is what Dryden worried about. But whether this opening is a damaging thing, you know, in the way he thought it inevitably was, I think depends on how you take the translation that has done the opening. So thinking back to the use we made um, of the Dryden translation of that moment when Aeneas sails away from Carthage, We used it to establish, you know, to to see what Dryden had seen in the Virgil, but also to see something different, to imagine, to discover a kind of more vivid sense of the the, the Virgilness of the Virgil that was different from what Dryden um, had had, had made of it, Um, to begin a sort of fragmentary but alert translation, complex translation um, of our own. It is then, really importantly, not a shortcoming for a text to be translated not a disadvantage to Dante that we come to him through translation translations make visible other readers readings they offer a minutely close continuous form of criticism against which to spark and gauge our own responses and actually this is something I'm really interested in exploring with my colleagues in this research program that Tim was mentioning um, at the beginning it's really interesting to look at translations of English texts into foreign languages that you know and it's quite hard to do in Oxford because um, the libraries here um, are very much, or have been, uh, very much of the view that why on earth would you want a French translation of Thomas Hardy <laughs> or an Italian version of Thomas Hardy? And so I, I wanted to do this, but I had to order in all the books. You know, Luckily, you, you know, the internet is good for this, isn't it? But I had to, I had to get all the, 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 the books myself. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that translation is really good at picking up on drawing your attention to as you read and compare, perhaps more so than the different kind of rewriting that literary criticism is um, are, are patterns which is to say aspects of the source that aren't, don't have meaning in the way words have meaning, but don't have semiotic meaning, but are instead shapes and patterns tunes, that kind of thing um, for instance that alliteration and internal rhyme which I mentioned briefly um, in Dante's first line. And of course, there are millions of other such patterns that we could look at, but one of my favourites is um, the last line of Canto 5, Inferno 5. This is the canto of Paolo and Francesca. Um, and you'll remember, so Francesca has been telling, so there's the, the, there's the wind, the spirit's kind of floating around, Francesca kind of lands in front of Dante, she tells this lacerating story. Um, especially lacerating for Dante because, in fact, she's, be, she's clearly been reading his own younger poetry and, and acting, um, kind, of, kind of acting it out in, in the way her feelings have developed. Anyway, so she tells her tragic story of doomed love um, and he responds to it by collapsing. E caddi come to cade? And I fell as a dead body falls. And for me, you know, the crucial thing about this, this line is that kind of pattern of repetition from caddi at the beginning to cade at the end. You know, the language is kind of laid out flat um, just in the same way as as, as he's laid out um, flat. Um, and this, what's interesting to me is this is a pattern that can be suggested by an illustration. Um, so, you know, in illustration and translation sometimes thought to be quite different, but actually, the continuity between them is that you know, language isn't just made up of words. Language is made up of shapes and patterns and lines as well. And translation. So there's a, there's a kind of illustrative element in translation, a kind of copying. Element in translation that's that's quite like um, an illustration, and so this, that shape in the line gives me a reason for preferring. This is a detail of Dore's illustration of this moment, you know, and I really like what Dante, you know the Dante figure there, and I like it better than in the Blake one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but there are different things that are obviously, you know, amazing about both images. But what's different about the Dore one is that the image, you know, the feet and the arms rhyme. You know, the feet and the arms. There's that pattern of kadi and kane. You know, it's got a rhyme in this body, uh, whereas in the, in the Blake one, the body is more like that. Um, and it seems to me that what Dore is doing is responding in his drawing to the pattern that there is in the language of kadi at the beginning of the line and kane at the end. Incidentally, all those translators that I was looking at before, none of them. Uh, reproduces this this pattern in the line, and the only one who does is um, Byron in a little fragment of translation that he did around about 1820. He does it the way it should, I feel, should should be done. Um, just going to wrap up as records of readings, then as cardiographs or seismographs of response. Translations don't match up to the source text, they don't carry over its meaning, that's not what they're fundamentally doing. Instead they show us that reading is a matter of imaginative collaboration, not just of reading meaning off a text, but of discovering it and drawing it out, recognizing the source text's own translatedness. And not just responding to meaning, but responding also to the physicality of a text, its patterns um, in ways which it can be hard to describe, but which can be suggested when translators or indeed illustrators, make echoic patterns of their own. Now, of course, you can't always, you know, there isn't time always to look at multiple translations in the way I have been doing here, and you can't always compare translation and source, because obviously there are lots of languages that one doesn't know. But if we accept that translations are explorations of a source text's imaginative potential, then we're less likely, I think, to fall into that legislative habit of mind that we saw in that nasty reviewer of Jamie McKendrick's um, book less likely to say that can't be right um, are more inclined to think that perhaps it is a possibility perhaps this is a way that people might might, might speak um, and I just want to close by showing you a couple of texts that I think call out and reward this more open-minded and exploratory response um, the first one again is from the Otter Weidenfeld Translation Prize and, then, and the second one I'll, I'll tell you about in a minute this is the beginning of Zamyatin's we um, which is that book that mattered to George Orwell that kind of partly influenced 1984, <coughs> translated by Nash, Natasha Randall in 2006. And I don't, I don't know any Russian at all. Um, so reading it, I'm just faced with this English text, which I know has been translated, and some very diffuse sense of the likely... You know, I'm not very good on Russian history or anything either, so I've got only a very you know, diffuse sense of where this text might be coming from. When you said about reading it, spring... From beyond the green wall, from the wild, invisible plains, the wind brings the yellow honey dust from a flower of some kind. This sweet dust parches the lips. You skim your tongue across them every minute and you presume that there are sweet lips on every woman you encounter. And man, of course. and I really like it. And the reason I like it is that it's so easy to imagine an editor protesting at some of these phrases. You know, Surely it's not what you mean by yellow honey dust is pollen. You know, Surely it's not right to talk about skimming your tongue over your lips. You ought to run your tongue over your lips. That's what we usually do in English. Um, you know, is it even remotely conceivable that Sam Yattin's narrator would speak of there being lips on every woman rather than every woman having lips? And there's a, there's a you know, to me, less good um, earlier translation that kind of obeys all these injunctions, which is to say... Takes the Russian text and kind of imposes established, you know, the expected habits of expression and perception um, on, the, on, the, on the translation of it. And reading it is a much, much duller experience. And, and so I trust, really, that the first text is kind of opening up and responding to the imaginative energy of the source text in a way that this, this, this other one is not. Um, the thing I want to end on, though, is um, a translation of. Uh, the book of Genesis by um, an alumna um, who I don't know, Mary Phil Corsack um, who can't be here um, this evening but who wrote to me when she saw the title of my lecture sending this book um, at the start Genesis made new saying um, that I might be interested in it it's always a bit of an uneasy moment when somebody sends you that book and says I hope you like it um, but I do really like it um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a startling piece of work and so I just want to, um, to end by showing you um, a little bit of it Um, which is um, the passage about the Tower of Babel um, where Mary Phil Corsack makes not just a literary translation but translation as literature um, out of the linguistic catastrophe, you know, the Tower of Babel moment, the linguistic catastrophe. No, rather the linguistic stroke of brilliant good luck um, that according to the story made translations necessary um, in the first place. And this is what she does with it. This is God speaking. Come, we will go down and make their lip babble there. So that no man will hear the lip of his companion. Yahweh scattered them from there upon the face of all the earth. They stopped building the town, so they called its name Babel, for there Yahweh made the lip of all the earth Babel. And I'll finish with that. Thank Thank you.